So you're in the right room if you're looking for the final program in our 19th annual series, One Month Scholar Series, uh, this year featuring Professor Paul Lips over here from Tel Aviv University. This is your first program, welcome. Very strange room, it's like skewed to the left. You guys, you, you, I feel like I should move everything to the left, or maybe you guys are gonna move in the middle. Do you like sitting on the side? My guess is these are the people that wanna leave early. Maybe in the middle of your presentation? Right. Fine, sit where you want, as long as you listen. I'm okay with that. Um, anyway, this is the final program. Those of you keeping count, which I have been doing, this is the 32nd, well, you know you've been keeping count. 32nd program in 30 days for our exhausted one-month scholar. He leaves tomorrow a very exhausted man as he flies back to, to Israel to help work on the Middle East peace plan. Good luck with that. I want to thank the uh, Jewish Federation and the Jewish Community Foundation for helping to uh, underwrite uh, our program. And they both gave us grants, a major grant, uh, impact grant from the Federation and a, a generous grant from the Foundation. But I also want to thank you, who are the donors for CSP. 85% um, of, of our funds every year, come, every year comes from you. And uh, I guess we're doing something right because this is our 19th year going to our 20th year of programs. So I wanted to thank you all. And uh, I, knew the, I knew like rabbis Seidman, both of them, uh, before they were both rabbis. And the irony is it's been 20 years and when we started uh, rabbis Seidman, I think that's a fair way to read. Right? Um, I had two children under the age of four, and now it's 20 years later, and I have two, year, two children under the age of four. So I have not aged, but the rest of you look way older in 20 years. I just want to make sure you know that. Um, I do want to thank uh, Ada and Rosella, who are here tonight on our CSP board, for helping to coordinate the rides for our program and his social programs. If you need people to coordinate social events for outtime guests, you call Ada and Rosella. They will take care of them. I also want to thank a special thanks to Debbie Meline. Is Debbie in the room? Hi, Debbie, everybody. Thank you, Debbie. Why are you clapping for Debbie? Because she helped to facilitate our opening night program here at the JCC. And when I called her and told her I couldn't fit everybody into the closing night um, over at Las Lomas, in about one, I don't know, 15 minutes, she was able to get us access to this room. So I wanted to thank you for doing that behind the scenes. If you are, for some reason, not a member of CSP or not a member of our Legacy Circle, I urge you to join us so we can continue in our 20th year and do more amazing programs with your help. Um, donors and members fund us now. Legacy members fund us in the future. And, of course, you can be one or the other or better yet, both. So you can see me outside to find out more about how you become members of our Legacy Circle. Stephen Haidt is here. He is our newest member of our Legacy Circle. So, Stephen, wherever you are, thank you for joining us. Um, another thing to consider before, uh, while you're here is uh, you may want to go, if you're interested in the Baltics, there's a tour I've just heard about. Shira Milo is going this summer in August. And the reason you may be interested and ties into our program is I heard they have a very interesting professor going with them, a scholar residence named Professor Paul Lips. Is he any relation? <laughs> So uh, you know how good Paul Lips is. If you ever want to see Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, this is the way to do it. And I'll email people about that as well. We also, um, many of you raise your hand if you're coming to Israel. October 2020, we have 
75 people going to Israel, which means we have room for maybe one or two more couples or three or four more people for an amazing experience um, that will be unlike anything you've done. This is our third CSP uh, international adventure to Israel. Each one is completely different and exhausting. So get your rest now. And for those of you who are interested and want to know more about it, you can see me at the table outside as well. We're going to go right into our program, but please stay afterwards because we're going to do three quick things. We're going to recognize those who attend the most uh, one-month scholar programs this year. We try to um, do a thank you, and I have something that I think would be, uh, will be fun for them. We also want to um, thank Professor Lips and with a special gift I have. Hopefully it's still here. Let me see. Uh, don't look. You don't look. It's in a no, it's in a box. Don't worry. Um, and, uh, of course, we're going to reveal the winners of our third annual CSB Hat Challenge, which I know you're all here primarily for anyway, but you have to put up with the professor. But we will get to that, so do not leave. Uh, we are recording tonight for iTunes. We have, I think, 13 of these, pro of these lectures that will be on iTunes. If you missed any, you want to hear them again, you go to iTunes, type in OCCSP in the search bar, you will find it. Um, remember, please take a moment, pick up your phone, and do two things. Put it, turn it off or put it on vibrate mode, and then make sure you have your phone because someone took my phone home from a CSP event recently. Yes, and can you imagine? My whole life was just gone for 15 minutes, so they realized and brought it back. But I survived, and now I put a little sticker on the back of my phone, which ties into our theme because that's uh, Theodore Herzl. Um, one last time, I'd like to recognize our honorees for this whole month, um, Roz and Elliot Vogelfanger, Thank you for being tremendous supporters of CSP, incredible um, supporters of our Jewish community and of Israel. And um, just, uh, it's over. So enjoy. This is it. I can't thank you, honor you again. This is it. So enjoy. Thank you so much. Please join me in welcoming Professor Paul Lips for the final lecture in Orange County on this tour. Uh, I think I've got a date. Bye. Uh, it was interesting, uh, about 10 months ago, when Ari started contacting me, um, I uh, started preparing the sessions. Uh, the only session I didn't prepare was tonight. Uh, the reason is that only being here and being with people would I really kind of know what I want to say. So now I do know what I want to say. But I want to start off with just one or two comments. I, I've traveled the word world a lot. I, I've done a tremendous amount of travel. Um, being in Israel, it was easy to get to Europe very quickly. So sometimes I was there for a week. Sometimes I was there for two days. Uh, it would sometimes happen that I finished my class at university at 12, at 3 p.m. I caught the plane, came back Sunday morning, and I had to get to my 12 o'clock class on a Sunday morning. So it was very full, and I've been to the States, something in the region of 25 times. I've been in some places for two weeks. I've never been anywhere, anywhere for a month. And what I'm going to say is, uh, comes from my heart. I have never, in all the places I've ever been to, been treated as well as I have here. And... Um, <laughs> Um, I started making a list of who had helped me. 
schlepped me, fed me, with Ari woke me up in the morning. Uh, everyone had an important role. And the list is so long that I'm not even going to go through the list, but hopefully in each and every case I managed to thank you. Uh, and um, it's really been a remarkable experience. The um, other person that I have to thank is Ari. Um, Mark Dollinger, who was a scholar last year, he was emailing me. And when I was going through major panic attacks every other day, a month, what am I going to do? 32 lectures, you know. Mark sort of calmed me down. And he assured me uh, in a number of emails that Ari would look after me. If anything really went wrong, Ari would look after me. And it is quite an amazing experience for me to have been here for a month, very active month, and absolutely everything worked. Can't get over it. <laughs> I can't get over it. The worst thing was that someone came 10 minutes late because there was a road accident on the way and then apologized profusely. That was the worst. I have never seen anything like that. And therefore, for everyone who made it work, and for Ari in particular, uh, I cannot even start to tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, Brenda was here, my wife was here for two weeks. Um, she had been ambivalent about it. She wasn't going to come at all at a certain time. And the reason she wasn't going to come, I said, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I didn't want to make her suffer. <laughs> She's married to me. I mean, that's bad enough. So, you know, I didn't want to make her suffer more. But she was here for two weeks, and she said, wow, you know, for her, it was just an absolute lovely experience going out with people, being welcomed, interesting, a sense of warmth. So that's the general stuff. I want to tell you I had to make another decision yesterday. To what extent was I going to deal with the Trump plan? And the reason I'm not going to deal with it, after a lot of thinking, is that in all my readings and contacts with people in Israel, and I, I felt it immediately, as soon as I very quickly flipped through the plan, that we don't really know what it is yet. We don't know what it really means. We don't know what the implications. We don't know who's going to implement it. And therefore, rather than making statements, although I'm on, on first glance not optimistic about it, but to actually see what it means in reality, uh, I honestly don't feel comfortable enough to make a comment. And I'm an historian. You know, anything that happens too close, I can't quite deal with. That's why I like it when, you know, I have a bit of distance. So that's really, I'll mention it in a few instances, but uh, not more than that. And my apologies to those of who I said I would be talking about it, but I really don't want to uh, talk about it uh, too much. Now, how can one deal with Israel? There are a number of approaches, and I want to take two extremes. One approach, which I understand, is... Things in Israel are great. 70% middle class, 13th happiest country in the world. Israelis are traveling around a lot. Uh, you spend time in Tel Aviv Thursday night at 2 a.m. and the city's just waking up. There, there is a voice in Israel which I hadn't heard or hadn't felt many years ago, 
And that is, let's not complain because everything's fine. And what isn't fine is not so important. And I understand that perspective, and it's certainly a perspective for people whose parents and grandparents came to Israel during the hard times, and they look at what it was, and they look at what it's now, and they say, well, I know not everything's fine, but it's good. We can live a here and now life, and uh, so let's stop complaining. The other school of thought that I belong to is that I think citizens um, must make sure that they are never stop being involved in what's happening in their country. Because no country is perfect, and governments are very strong, and governments are sometimes very isolated. And so there's a need for the citizens to make their voice heard, because in the final analysis, a country belongs to its citizens, not to the government. It's broader than just the government. And in a country like Israel, which is young and fragile and finds itself in such a difficult part of the world, it seems even more so than the general rule that I arrived in Israel when it was 19 years old, one day before the Six-Day War. I've seen tremendous developments. I could give a wonderful lecture on how, how we've become, you know, the ultimate best. But we aren't. And so not to depress and not to lessen any, for a moment, any of the wonderful components of the State of Israel, what I decided to present tonight was to try and look at the realms which need to be better. And it's, it doesn't mean that some of the realms aren't great. You know, and, and sometimes I look at Israel today, and we live north of Tel Aviv, 20 minutes north of Tel Aviv, in a lovely little town of 14,000, and it is just as good as it can get. I mean, day-to-day -day living on a personal level, on the family level, on the economic level, that we live in our town is an absolute dream. But I know that not in our town, 15, 20, half an hour minutes away from us, half an hour from us, other things are happening. And it seems to me that if you really love a country, then you have to love it critically, else you don't love it. It's like love between people. Two people who really love each other know the blemishes of the other. I mean, if I'd been married to Ari, I'd know all about that. But, <laughs> but, but one is. That is. That's the reality of humanity. And it seems to me that it doesn't matter where a country is, and even if a country's going through a good time or bad time, I think it's, it's to constantly recognize that the components of the country we're living in, for those of us who are lucky, to understand the people who are less lucky. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. But I do want to emphasize, I talk about it like this, a critical analysis, because I think Israel is amazing and we are mature enough now to analyze. In the early times, of early stages of Israel, we couldn't analyze. And I think I, I said in one session uh, what had a tremendous effect on me. Uh, I, read a, I was reading many years ago a Hebrew newspaper and I looked at what was going on in the country uh, in uh, 1949, May 1949, after Israel was one year old. And it was a little letter to the editor that as I read it, Hebrew paper, as I read it, 
I couldn't stop thinking about it. Four, five lines, and the essence of what was written there was, isn't it wonderful? We're here for one full year, and we're still here. <laughs> and now we're almost 72. So we don't feel so excited about every year. We're strong in a very tough region. But I think the need for people concerned about their countries is to look at the blemishes and constantly be aware of things that aren't so good. I think that is the right and that is the demand of a citizen. I think in small countries it's easier. I think we feel um, in Israel that we can have an influence. It's small enough, it's local enough, one's close enough to decision makers. So in some senses, because of that, being a small, young country, I think there is this feeling that we, are, uh, we can uh, do things. Now, I've chosen the magical number of 10 realms because I couldn't think of any others. Um, these are the realms that I think that Israel has to pay attention to. These are the realms that I think are important. And these are the realms that I think anyone, regardless of where we live, and I'm very, very much a Jewish world person, traveled around the Jewish world, feel very close to people in different countries, um, and I feel responsibility for them. Uh, and I think these are issues that are important to all of us, regardless of where we live. The first realm is the lack of religious tolerance. I'm reform. The treatment of people like me, or from the conservative movement, or the reconstructionist movement, is unacceptable. Unacceptable. You know, it's got to a stage where, in some societies, uh, the majority is always right. In religious realms in Israel, the minority is always right. The people who control the lives of those of us who aren't part of the religious establishment are not the majority, but they have political and religious power. And I think what's happening, it worries me, because in what I'll talk about in more detail a little later, in this tension that's sometimes felt between the American Jewish communities and Israel, the religious issue is very important. And you know, there was a promise that there would be a place next to the Western Wall for the non-Orthodox groups. And it was this promise and that promise, and then it didn't work through. And again and again, what worries me is not the right of one group to have their view, but the denial of another right to have their view. That doesn't seem to be okay. Doesn't seem to be okay. And I think it not only has an effect on Israeli society, but it has effect on our global interaction with other communities as well. By the way, this is about money also. Until recently, reform, conservative, and reconstructionist rabbis had to pay for themselves. We pay to belong to our local synagogue. Orthodox don't. And why do we pay? Because until fairly recently, there was no government money coming for the rabbis of the non-Orthodox groups. Now it's getting better. And this is what I think is the important point. Not only is it getting better, but it can even get better. 
the actions of the two main organizations, the conservative and reform, the leadership is good, serious people, committed, and therefore slowly but surely, for some people too slowly, slowly but surely what we're beginning to find in religious realms that we're somehow getting in more money from the government. It doesn't come from the Department of Religious Affairs. It comes from the Department of Culture and Sport. <laughs> I prefer it to be from the Religious Affairs Department, but money is money. Same shkalim. It doesn't really... I can live with that. We're getting into the schools. There's a Masorti school system. One of our children uh, studied uh, on that, one of those programs. A very good education. Um, so things can happen. And I'm always frightened about loss of belief in being able to influence future. And I think although it's slow, and though it's not always in the realm that I want, I think in religious realms it can change, one can get more involved, one can hopefully reach some realms of religious tolerance. This is not against for a moment the religious establishment, but I think institutions which don't feel pressure don't change. And so the pressure is important. And I would say that in all directions. In this case, it personally influences me because of my um, religious identification. But I think it's a phenomenon which I would support in any situation. The second is the army. We need soldiers. The number of Israelis who are serving in the army for full army service is going down. Quite considerably. Quite considerably. And if we ask the question, why are less Israelis serving? There are a number of reasons. number of reasons. Firstly, there's a feeling which is deeply felt by many young Israelis, 18-year-olds, who are saying to themselves, I'm going to give three or four or five years of my life, and I know there are a whole lot of people who aren't going to do it. So there's an interesting Israeli word, friar, which means a sucker. Sounds better in Hebrew. The friar, you know, I need friar. I'm, a, I'm one of them. I know that those people are doing nothing and I'm doing it. You know, in our little family, we, my, husband, my wife and myself and, and four children, um, we served 14 years in the army. As a regular, it's a lot of years for one little family. And we did it because this is what the country needed. So the fact that some people don't have to do it is a worry, and it impacts on Israelis in the Tel Aviv area, who in the old days, army was definitely one of the mechanisms of upward mobility. In an earlier Israel, you had to do army to get anywhere. It's not true anymore. The society's changed. You know, startup companies in the old days would kind of almost ask, what unit were you in? But it doesn't really like that anymore. So the country is a poor, in a poorer situation. Now there are two alternatives, and one has to think out of the box. There's this concept of national service. From right from the beginning, from 1949, the idea of national service started. It was for those people who, for one reason or the other, could be religious reasons, it could be personal reasons of one kind or the other, uh, national service was developed. It was a good idea. I remember going down to some of the development towns um, in, in the late uh, 60s, 
uh, and seeing these women doing national service in the very, very depressed city of uh, Yerucham. It's a tough kind of area at the end of the world in those days. And uh, the, um, these young women, rather than being in the army, they, they came from traditional families and their parents really didn't want them involved in army affairs. And because of gender issues, which I understand, they were doing amazing work in Yerucham helping some of the families at that time coming from North Africa who were finding it very, very hard to deal with the modern Western society, and they were doing a good job. So I asked myself, why aren't the Haridim also doing national service? Why are they exempt? You see, we're not saying to them, put on an army uniform. We're not saying to them, carry a gun. We're not even saying to them, go into a unit where men and women are going to be mixed. But if there's a demand to serve the country, which we need because of the nature of the area we're living in, why don't they do it also? And I say this to the Arab population. 21% of all Israeli citizens are Arabs, calling themselves Israeli Arabs or Palestinian Israelis, different terminology. But why aren't they doing national service? By the way, national service you can do in your own area. It's designed for it. One or two years, modern Orthodox women do national service. And sometimes they go home every evening. The parents might not want them to be in a base or far away from home, understandably. But I say to the Arabs who I meet in Israel, if you have national service, they could change the, the nature of your cities. Some of their cities are in chaos. They really are. And... It's not just money, it's what human power, what involvement there will be of the local population. Some of the schools really need help. The kids are having trouble in their studies. Some of the uh, uh, local young Arab people, Israeli, Palestinian Arabs, are, uh, could easily help. So this is very, very important. And you know, the word on the street increasingly in the greater Tel Aviv area goes back to this question, why only us? Are we the only ones who have to bear it? And the burden is unbelievable. Military service is not fun and very dangerous. So I think this whole thing of, you know, who is going to bear the national burden is very, very important, particularly when we speak about the Haritim with the average family size of seven children. So the situation only gets worse as time goes by. Okay, the average, you know, they used to say the Arabs are, are a danger demographically. It's not true. It's 3.02 uh, children in the case of the, the local Arab society. So I think this army issue is important. And um, it, it worries me that as the years go by, this ability of, or the demand of one group to bear the national burden and not other groups, I think is not only unfair but in the long term, uh, problematic. I want to talk about the socio-economic phenomenon. In a large country like the United States, where you have tremendous gaps in income, one can say, you know, whatever one wants, is it natural or it's capitalism or what? It's a, I think it's different. In a small country like Israel, the maximum number of people who on board in terms of the national goals 
is still very important for the country. When you have marginal groups in a small country, it means you haven't got that spare population. So we've got a 70% middle class, which is a fantastic success. It's amazing. I mean, that figure, although middle class has worked on different economic uh, concepts in every part of the world, that, that reality is amazing. But what's happening to the 30%? The 30% we want on board as well. And one of the ways that we want them on board is to make sure that their economic lives are better so they feel part of the society. Now, we're seeing it with the Arab population, interestingly enough. Um, in a conference that I attended, uh, uh, someone in the audience asked the question of one of the young Arab students, one of the stu my students. They said, what's your dream? And he said, two children and a dog. <laughs> Very clever. Uh, and someone pointed out to me the other day, because I'd made that comment, I think, when I, when I, my very first lecture here, uh, two children is a sign that I want to be middle class. A dog is a lot of energy. And the other point, which I hadn't initially thought of, is a dog is not accepted in Arab society. It's considered a dirty animal. So it's actually a quantum jump of values. So that's, uh, that's very interesting. So the, the, their, uh, and economic realities, if you've got, we all know, if you've got enough money to somehow or other feel comfortable, you feel part of the country. You become committed to it. You want to go through upward mobility. You want to educate your children. All those are true. We've got serious challenges with the Ethiopians um, because they have not gone through uh, adequate upward mobility in economic realms. They're a small group. There's a major, very impressive programs trying to get more Ethiopians into university, but that's not the only challenge. After that, they want to make sure they get reasonable jobs. So glass ceiling concepts, which we find uh, as a women question in the past, less so in, in many countries now, but still there, um, that I think is uh, uh, very important. Even the Haredim have what is recently being noted. 5% uh, of the Haredim are beginning to say the following in very clear words. We don't have to be poor to be religious. We can be religious, but we don't have to be poor at the same time. And I think it's a very important concept. Because I think economic security leads to a whole lot of positive issues. By the way, as you go through some level of upward mobility, you criticize the society, but you criticize from within and not from without. And that's an important difference. How you criticize and where you criticize from or where you analyze from is important. And I think upward, the potential of upward economic advancement is very, very good for societies. We're not talking about handing out money. It's not that. It's about being productive people in the society, and I think that's uh, very important. Let me take the tough one, political language. And here I'm totally biased. I belong to the 50 to 55% awful group in Israel called leftists. It's almost a swear word, and I blame the prime minister. He might have done good things. 
not against it, Prime Minister. I don't think he's a bad Prime Minister. He's done excellent things. He brought about economic change. He's developed things. But his willing decision to split the country in the harshest form that I've seen since I arrived in 1967 is unforgivable. Now, who are the leftists? Who are these almost, and the leftists has said, almost is on the verge of almost traitors. Sometimes it's said almost in that sense. They, this, this group that I belong to, these terrible people, have almost all served in the army. Some of the top security people in the country are these awful leftists. People who've given their life to help the country belong to this awful group, the leftists. Now, I know politics is a dirty game. And many of my political science friends say, you know, politics is about winning and nothing else. But I think that's dangerous. And I think in dividing a society, and I see this all around the world, I see it in Poland, and I see it in Hungary, and I see it in Britain, very much recently in Britain, increasingly, this political divide which comes about because of the language you speak about the other group. And one has to ask oneself very carefully, particularly when one's the political leader, what are you saying about the other? What are you achieving? And you know, our oldest grandchildren, 19, 15, 15, and then, because we've got 11, I can't remember the ages, but they get younger, apparently. Uh, <laughs> The, they, they hear it, and they're asking this question. They're saying, you know, why is the prime minister saying these things against us? What have we done? Our oldest granddaughter serves in the army. Her mother and father served in the army for extra years. And so it corrupts the society, and it's very, very dangerous. And I think when eventually the books are written about Bibi Netanyahu sometime in the future, some people say, we hope the books will be written soon, but <laughs> we won't go into those details. But I think this is going to come up very much. Now, there were other leaders who've done it, but not as persistently and as cruelly as our prime minister at the moment. And so regardless of political views, and I speak to a lot of people with very different political views from me, and they would agree with me that the language we use or the language that leaders use about the other, about the opposition, is extremely dangerous. Let me speak about the Trump plan in one component. The Trump plan has a clause which says 300,000 Israeli-Palestinian Arabs Citizens of the State of Israel, citizens from January 1949 when the War of Independence ended, those 300,000 people will not be part of Israel, but part of the Palestinian state. They won't have to move, but the border will be changed. It's a sliver of land. Those people live 15 minutes away from where we live. Um al-Fakhim, Bakar al-Gabiyah, Tira. 
Arab villages where I know the people. They're not terrorists. They're regular people. They're part of Israeli society. During the big storms, we had tremendous rain a little while ago. In the northern part of Israel, not in the exact areas that I'm talking about, they, the uh, uh, Arab, uh, Arabs who owned tractors found that people were getting caught in the heavy floods, immediately took their tractors to help the population out. We see it all the time. We don't have to make these people our enemy. We can disagree with them politically. Okay, they vote for a party that I wouldn't vote for. It's a much more leftist party. They identify very strongly with the Palestinians, and I've got issues with the Palestinians. But these are Israeli civilians and without any consultation. The idea of the Trump plan is to cut them off. And what's the idea? Where does that come from? Because it's known that the Israeli voter, Israeli Arab, Palestinian voter, will not be voting for the prime minister. It's a straight political situation. Put it into the American concept. Can you imagine the craziness of deciding that San Diego doesn't belong to the United States? I mean, how ridiculous. These people are citizens of Israel. They do not want to be Palestinians, and I understand why. They speak Hebrew. They've been to Israeli schools. They go to Israeli universities. They are Israeli doctors and Israeli pharmacists and Israeli professors and Israeli everything else. So one of the reasons why I didn't want to go into a full analysis of the um, plan, because if for me, if this happens, it will be one of the great disasters for Israeli society. We will be doing what happened in Europe after the Second World War. After the Second World War, because it was such a terrible moment of history, they decided to pick up Poland and move it 150 miles to the west, no one complained. After the Second World War, it was another time. We're living in a different moment. We're not talking about the problem with Gaza, where the people attack us. We're talking about 300,000 people who are full-time citizens of the State of Israel. Now, I'm reading social media. People think like me. And their people are heartbreaking. Regular Israeli Jews are heartbreaking. What is happening? It's such a tough, multi-ethnic society. When you say something like that, and that comes from America, so obviously supported by the Israeli government, large sections must have been written together with the Israeli government. It wasn't Jared sitting by himself uh, having a good time. Uh, that wasn't what it is. And I want to just take this particular part of the Trump plan without going into the others, but just to say that this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. The argument is that the border gets very technical. The border of, no of uh, November 1947, which was the UN partition plan, is a different border from January 1949. Israel won the war. About 20% of the land of, that Israel controlled was increased. We got more land. Part of that extra land we got were these Arab villages over there. 
But that was the end. Then the war ended. Just imagine if this becomes a norm of human behavior. Just imagine if large countries, and we see this with Russia, large countries will just, on their own, unilaterally, cut up countries, cut up people, divide up societies. What's that about? And even if someone says, well, this is how the world behaves, I think it behoves all of us to say, this is how we don't want to behave. I don't mind. I have arguments in Israel all the time. And someone would say, but look what's happening in Egypt. Look what's happening in Syria. As if that's supposed to make me feel happier. I don't want to be like Egypt and Syria. I want to be part of a humane country. So this idea that look at other people as being a reflection on us has no validity. Now, we're not going to necessarily be a light unto the nations. The globe is a little bit not so good anymore. But okay, it's not this great, we're not going to guide the world. But there has to be, there has to be some realm that we say this we disagree with. This is inhuman. And not only is it inhuman, it creates a tremendous amount of insecurity to the other. Remember, we're talking about 1.9 million. So you take away 300,000, the others, 1.6 million people, they're going to feel very insecure. Um, your group is going down to uh, the desert, hope, hopefully to study the Bedouin. Um, you know, everyone's going to, all the people who don't belong to the majority group are going to feel some level of insecurity. So I think we should take this seriously, and we should worry about it. Because if we don't worry about it and don't feel for this, then some very important components of what I think our country should be cannot be. And this, in particular, I won't go through other parts of the plan, which um, I think are, are problematic, um, but this is certainly the case. The Ethiopians, a subsection. All of us, each human being, has sensitive components of her or his life. All of us, everyone. Coming from racist Southern Africa, my wife from South Africa, myself from what is now Zimbabwe, when we hear racism, it touches the core of us because we were brought up in it. My wife grew up in a very, very liberal family where at a certain time her mother who was treating the local Indian population in the city of Durban, there was a, a secret police guy, not so secret, on a motorbike outside. Their phone was being tapped. I was very active in politics at the local university in what was then Salisbury, and, uh, and I saw it, and I, 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 it was terrible. I cannot look at racism in its crudest sense, we're not talking about the odd comment, which is problematic in itself, but people like ourselves who have suffered through history, we have to feel it. We have to be the voice against racism. We're not talking about racism of where you live and where you live. It's not that kind. It's the language of racism. It's the humiliation of racism. And I think in terms of our Ethiopian population, 
our great achievement was that we brought them to Israel. An announcement was made um, uh, yesterday that of the Falashmura, the people who were Christian, now want to come to Israel because to join their families, uh, another 400 uh, will be allowed to come. And there's a, a question which we have to ask ourselves. Who are the groups who can, are happily welcomed into Israel? And who are the groups who aren't happily welcomed into Israel? Well, Israel has always wanted some people more than other people. But once those people have arrived in our country, and the Ethiopians are living near us, we see them. Some of them have done extremely well. But you speak to the Ethiopians. You know, once again, they don't, they're not a people who like to make too much trouble. They don't want to cause trouble. That isn't what they're interested in. They're a quiet people. But you ask what pains them. And they'll say, well, you know, we're living in rough conditions. And then they say, but I know first generation often live in a rough conditions whenever they move to another country. And you'll say to them, well, maybe the schools you don't go to too well. But they say, but at least we're going to school. When we lived in Gondar and Tigray provinces, we hardly had a school. But what that gets them is the racist comment. Now, racism is very difficult to remove. I taught many, many courses at university on imperialism and colonialism and racism. So I, I'm, I'm aware of the problems, but I speak about stereotypes a lot. But I think, you know, I think once again the government should not allow it. Being a, an open society doesn't mean you can say anything you want. I think to say, you know, that is what democracy is, anything you want, say. I think there has to be constraints. I think issues which are deep harm a group or an individual to a great extent should not be allowed. I think constraint is also okay. You know, when I was 19 years old, I thought in the 60s, uh, everything's okay. Uh-uh, no, it's not. And I think particularly with the Ethiopians, we have to know that it is the racism which is the most painful for them, and they are part of our society, and I think this is uh, important. I want to say just a little about the Palestinians. It's a big, complex issue. Um, I agree with Abba Eben. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, I, I've, I've been involved in some of the discussions. Some of my good friends have donated hours and hours and hours trying to help them to understand that to say no, 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 no all the time isn't the best policy. Use the word maybe. It's, it's, you can do things in a different kind of way. But I want to speak about one component of where we're responsible. I can't, I, not responsible, I cannot influence the Palestinian leadership. But there is something which is happening which we have to be aware of if we love Israel. And that is this phenomenon of certain settler groups carrying out which is what is called an English price tag, where they random attacks on olive groves and grapes. The other day, on a mosque, a Muslim, obviously a Muslim mosque. Um, it, it happens, the, the statistics show us that every third day, there's some attack 
on Palestinians. Palestinians who are vulnerable. It's not the Palestinian army. It's a regular little village or a little place they live on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And the attacks are terrible. By the way, we had a period, a terrible period, of attacks on churches in, in the Sea of Galilee area in particular. So these things the government has to deal with and has to take seriously. And it's something that many of us just can't understand. Um, by the way, I do say to the Palestinians whenever I have the opportunity, um, just as you have neighborhood watch in many parts of the world, and we used to have it in Israel a lot, Mishmar Israchi, when we're in Jerusalem, uh, that was very important in particular. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure why they don't look after their villages also. So it's not purely a government problem. So why don't they have neighborhood watch? They know 10, 15, 20 minutes away, there's one of these uh, uh, often hillside youth uh, who are the particular group that is responsible for much of what's going on, apparently. Um, so it's not only one-sided. But on the other hand, a government has responsibility. The government has the power. Villages don't have that power. And I think if the idea is just to cause pain, because it doesn't do anything else, what does burning a mosque do? We are the Jewish people. 1930s in Germany? We don't know what it means to burn down synagogues. We haven't learned and many of these people are religious people. So what's happening? This is bad. And you know, I'm told, and I think it's true, it's certainly not all the people living, the Israelis living in the territories. Certainly not. But even if it's a small percent, even if it's one percent, the impact is tremendous. And you know, in all societies, when that one or two or three percent damage a society, then there has to be some sort of collective responsibility, particularly from a government, uh, because they have the military and police power uh, to do something about it. Having been here for a month in Orange County, I've, I want to say this. I want us all to be together. Now, I don't want you all to come to Israel. We haven't got space. <laughs> but I want us to be one people. Spent a many, many hours of my life as part of the, a job that I had for several years, a part-time job, with the, um, the World Union for Progressive Judaism, where I'd be sent to some of the little communities in in Prague or somewhere in the Czech Republic and Budapest and Poland and uh, Belarus and, and uh, Ukraine and, and Russia and other places. Um, and uh, I always felt very strongly for them because the Jewish world is made up of two components, two large populations living in the United States and Israel we make up about 80% of the population, and 20% who live in those little places. So naturally, it seemed to me that the little places, the 20% are where, you know, I'll give some of my spare time. But this month in Orange County has uh, made me think differently. Uh, 
I've put you on my personal map. Now, I'm not such a macher, so you don't have to think that's so wonderful. <laughs> but I think it's important. And someone said to me earlier, uh, one of these several J's, um, am I talking about the Israeli-American-Jewish relationship? And it wasn't down on my original list. But you know, I, I was sorry that it wasn't on my list, because it's important. We so depend on each other wherever we live. You know, there was a time in Israeli history where unless you said, I'm going to live in Israel, and there was a time for those of us who were in Habonim at a certain time, if we're going to live on kibbutz, you know, that was what it was all about. We live in a different world today. I am totally believe that people must live where they want to live. But I also believe that the history of the Jewish people also say, and some of the frightening events of anti-Semitism which we're seeing in Orange County, in LA, in Britain, in so many parts of the world, mean that we just have to work together better. And I think that's an important issue. How do we work together? I think everyone has their own mechanism. Everyone has their own way of doing it. Uh, surveys show, by the way, that the strongest form of retaining relationship are one-to-one -one friendships. It's amazing. Why? Because I think it's the mind. I know when something happens tough in Israel, some of the people then write a one-line email, we hope you're safe. And my response for the last one, I was very safe. I was in the local pool having a great time. Um, so we're not always in danger. But I think, it's, I think it's the little things. I think it's the little things which are big things, which is caring, knowing people in tough situations. Uh, you know, when I'm hearing what's happening in Hungary recently with the rise of the right-wing Jobbik party, you know, my immediate, my head is saying... I, I can't see the big picture, but I can see the four or five people who I've had good relations with over the years. And the, our relationship, wherever we live, with those who live in Israel and those of you who live here, I think we have to think very carefully about how we develop those relationships. Now, one way it's proved are visiting, tours visiting Israel. It depends how you visit. There was many, many years where the way people visited Israel was, we'll show you how wonderful we are. And it didn't always penetrate the audience because they knew they weren't seeing all the things. For those who go on the Ari Katz Wild West tour of Israel, <laughs> and I saw the program, the good thing is that you see the other things. And it's great. You know, we're not a little baby anymore. The, the PRs, the propaganda stuff, which might have been necessary in the early days, those days are over. Now it's the honest truth. Now it's coming to see Israel, which is a great, great country. Terrific society. Amazing successes. But with our flaws as well. And to see the complexity of Hebron, which those going to 
um, Israel will, in November will see. And a very, very a tough group, the, the Bedouin, uh, who live in unrecognized villages, unrecognized from uh, 1948, to, to, to know that and therefore be able to make a sensible, mature analysis of what is in Israel and what isn't in Israel and be part of a dialogue is important. And I think nothing can be more important than making sure that the relationship between us, whether we live here or whether we live there, is absolutely uh, vital. My last two comments. Some people never think I'm going to end, by the way. <laughs> so that's the good news. So the last two comments is what I like about Israel, and I want us to carry on doing it. Aid to countries and peoples in distress. I just hope we never stop it. There's an earthquake somewhere. There was an earthquake in Turkey a few days ago. The, the Israeli government was the first one. You see, I'm not against everything the government does, just 99%. No, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say anything like that. It's a mistake. Hi, oh, that guy said it. So, good things. The, uh, the, the, Syrian, the Syrians who were wounded in the war we helped, and an earthquake in Turkey. And if, when we had a massive fire in Israel, Turkey, not our greatest friend, offered to send in aeroplanes. We, we send out our, our staff, various uh, groups, again and again excuse me, to, to help. Our second son uh, spent, when he was in the army, about uh, a month in Rwanda. There was problems in Africa, and he was, he was there helping the local African population. That's a great thing we do. And I want to make sure that that is always there as well. That's important. That's important. And it's not just a PR thing. It's something that I think we should do, and I'm pleased we're doing it, and I want to make sure we carry on. My very last comment. Yitzhak Rabin, who I'd spoken about in the fourth of the series um, the other night, or the, yeah, um, said, I can't remember when he first said it, he said, the world is not against us. Now that's quite strange because many Israelis say the world is against us. So every time someone does something or says something, we think everyone's against us. I think that's very dangerous. And I think what we have to do, and it doesn't, I think it's, we have to do it with a tremendous amount of energy, is to increase our circle of friends. Now, there are many ways of doing it. I, I found it fascinating. I once met a group of uh, Latinos from uh, uh, the United States who came. Uh, and I'd been told before they came that uh, it was going to be a rough session, that they were very critical of Israel. Okay, it was a Friday morning. So I'm sort of preparing myself in the morning, have my double vodka, you know, <laughs> out there to meet the enemy who were going to be angry. And they walk into this room, a hotel in Jerusalem, and they're as happy as anything. And they say, what a lovely country. So I say, hang on. Uh, I say to the guide, is this the same group you told me about? Because these people seem to be happy. See, what had happened, they, for some reason or other, they heard that the place to be on Thursday night is Tel Aviv. 
And they went to Tel Aviv. I, I, they didn't sleep, that was for sure. I could see as they came in, they thought this is a great comfortable room, they wanted to sleep, but they didn't fall asleep. And I, I said to them, you know, I started talking about Israel's got flaws and everything. So one of the people said to me, don't give us that. And I hope I'm, what I'm going to say is not uh, insulting to any of you. They say, we had such a good time in Israel, in, in Tel Aviv last night. Terrific. We met these young Israelis. They tell us everything they think. They're lively. They offer us drinks. It was fantastic. So I said, well, don't you have that in America? They said, no, in America, they're only wasps. <laughs> so I hope I haven't insulted anyone, but you know exactly what I mean. And I, you know, I'm kind of trying to be politically correct, and I'm trying not to laugh. And they say, gosh, this is a great country. Why did you give us all this wrong propaganda? We want to come here more often. So going out and getting people to come to Israel on good tours, and it doesn't matter who it is, and it doesn't matter to, to organize, and it doesn't always matter exactly what the program is, but I think the Israeli experience is good, and if it's done honestly, it, not everyone's going to be happy, and some people would say it's worse than we thought. We saw some things we didn't like, but I think my last comment of having been here and felt such friendship from so many of you is to say that if we in Israel can make an important component of ensuring that we have more friends than we've got, and we've got friends, we've got friends in the world, what you, where you can help us and when we can get more involved in this, I think that is uh, excellent. Tonight, I am sad. Genuine. It's hard. It's been a wonderful month. Absolutely wonderful. It's been a month of being cared for. It's been a month of being able to choose more food than I can normally do in five years of my life in Israel. <laughs> it's a month of friendship. Uh, and it's been a month for me to also learn. To teach and to learn is the ultimate wonderful moment that any person can have. I go home, as I say, with sadness, but I go home to tell a lot of my friends that I had a great time, and if they want to leave Israel, let them come and live in Orange County. Thank you very much. First of all, uh, the professor kept asking me how he did compared to Mark Dollinger, who was here, who did very well. But, you know, I get every hour I get a call. How am I doing now? How did I do? I keep saying, well, Mark did very well, but I think you had more people at your opening. You had more people at your closing. You had more classes than Mark. And I don't think Mark got a standing ovation. Don't tell him. This part of the recording will be expunged. So uh, a few quick things. First of all, I asked... 
some of you to say, I asked you all to send me notes of things you've learned, but I, I, I got a few. I would like to get more. I also asked some of you who told me great stories that I didn't know. For example, we talked about the Altalena affair a few times. I didn't know Altalena was the pen name for Jabotinsky, so I looked it up to find out why he used it. Do you know why he chose that name? Because it means swing in, he, in, in Italian, and he was writing at a he was writing in Italy, and he chose that word because his mood would swing. Um, anyway, but, I, but Ahuva Ho, who many of you know, walked up to me and said, uh, do you all know the Altalena, the story about the boat? And it was, okay, we heard it many times. Ahuva Ho, look it up if you don't know. But Ahuva Ho came up to me and said, I saw it burn. I said, how old are you, Ahuva? I don't, how could you see it burn? She said, I was four years old. We lived on the beach. There was a big commotion. My brother grabbed my hand. He took me to the beach. It was incredible on the beach, and I saw it burn. It was amazing. That's one. It was Orange County. And then where's Eliza Masterman? So what, tell us your story in the connection to things you learned from Paul. First, Paul, please don't tell any sweaters about Orange County. We have so many of them. <laughs> So the point is, many of you are connected. I mean, Israel is only almost 72 years old, and many of you are connected in many ways to that story. Some of you saw history. Some of your parents participated in history. So I want to thank you for bringing that history back to us, sharing it with us over the um, last 30 days. So um, I'm going to do three quick things, and then you are free to leave. I'm going to recognize those who attended the most programs. We're going to give you a special gift that I bought before you came here, anticipating you'd be good, knowing if you weren't good, I'd keep it myself. But I guess I have to give it to you. And then reveal the winner of the uh, third annual CSB Hat Challenge. So first of all, I'm, I'm going to do it this way. If you've attended, there were 11, just in the class series alone, there were 11. So if you have participated in 10 or more of the programs, you stand up for a second so I know who have participated in 10 or more of the one-month scholars. So this is 10, one-third of the programs. So for some reason, it's really weighted to that part of the room, but I think it's just math statistically uh, unimportant. It's more, more people are just sitting there anyway. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go. No, no, stay, remain standing. So I'm going to go down. How many of you attended 12 or more programs? This would be all of the class series and one more. So most of you are still standing. Okay, let's go to 15, which is a big number, because 15 would be all the classes, the opening, the closing, Synagogue things. How many do we have left? Oh my gosh, you two are there? 15. Okay, so there were 30 programs. We're going to jump up to 20 real quick. If you participated in 20, I'm trying to get some people to sit down. How many do I have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to jump one more time. 25 programs. 25 programs. Who do I have left? One, two, three, four. That's it? Okay. It's not the same people as last year, but it's close. Hey, wait, you want to ask? 
Is that better than Mark Dollinger? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, did anybody attend like 30 out of 32? How many did you guys do? We own uh, the public ones. We didn't go to the rabbis. Okay, I'm not, yeah, you couldn't go to the rabbis. Just We went to everyone except Heritage Point. Everyone except, so that would be 29 out of 30? Mm-hmm. Okay, anybody do more than 29 out of 30? <laughs> okay, no, no. So you guys think. So you guys are the finalists, but you definitely overachieved this month. So come up real quick. I have something to give you. And everyone, please, let's give them an applause. Okay. So the first thing is uh, I figured these would come in handy. So these are... Show the group, please. Oh my god, my daughter's gonna flip out when she's Travel adventures. These are um, covers for your um, for your passports. Oh. So these are from the artist from the first night, and oh, it yeah. shows the crossing the Allenby Streets. Remember that big thing? Yeah. Um, so thank you. One for you. Thank you. And then, uh, this is uh, for the ultimate people who went to so many programs. So this is the book, The Prime Ministers, an intimate narrative of Israeli leadership by Yehuda Avner, introduced by Martin Gilbert, which maybe you'll inscribe for them afterwards. Is it for you guys? Yeah, I think they know Lovely book. So I want you to appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. That was one thing. The second thing, for the professor, there were two things I got. Actually, three things. My favorite first. Please open this and see what's on it. It's kind of on theme. Special socks. Now, you have to look what's, in, what's what written on the top of the socks. Right. So... Just in case, we are entering our 20th year. 
Donors will be getting special things, including CSP monogram socks to wear to synagogue. Um, and given the, given the nature of this group, to the gym. What? There will be a color selection. Sure, fine. Um, the second thing I got, it's ironically enough, flown in from Israel as is a box. You'll have to open it and look what's in it. <laughs> I had to fly stuff in from Israel for him, which... This is for your desk. Hey, be careful, it's going to fly out all over the place. It's, a, it's like a rare collection of um, miniatures. Um, and so... Yes. So what do you have there? You've got, they're miniatures. You can see them afterwards. This box contains Rabin, so it's like one of those little miniatures. Golda Meir, Ben-Gurion. I'll take this one, because you don't need both. I'll put that on my desk. Okay. And then, th this is actually, this is, this was the one that I ordered, and I was like, oh, he better be good, because, oh, I lost the back of it. So maybe you can figure out what this is. It's a framed th something. It's an original frame something. Do you know what that is? Oh, you want me to read it too? Should I read it to, to read people? Okay. This is what it is. I got this shipped in and I had it framed. So don't break it in your bag, please. Don't break it. Okay. It says, Dear Sirs, this is to me. Thank you for your purchase. I hope you will be pleased with this vintage 1926 Palestine Karen Kayamet Israel signed land reclamation donation receipt that you have bought. So that is actual receipt for someone who bought land in Israel as part of Karen Kayamet 1926. So, uh, right. and then Debbie Maline, I have something for you. These are um, a set of coasters from the artists from Tel Aviv with the hipsters on it. So actually, I want you to come down and open and show Dahlia Taft afterwards because it has um, more than Ben-Gurion. It has some other Israeli leaders that were hipsterized. So those are the gifts. Are those okay? You think, can you carry that home with you? But I thought that would be appropriate. I think. It really is an original. These are like, you know, collectibles. Okay. So this is for Debbie. So um, you have to open them up, and, and see, while you open them, I'll do the last thing, which is what everyone really came... Dahlia's right there. So what everybody really came to hear, which is what happened with our CSP hats this year. I know you'll be wearing yours when you travel around now, right? Sending me pictures. By the way, Mark Dollinger did do something that Fresh Lips has not said yet, done yet, which is he wore his CSP hat somewhere interesting and sent me a picture, but you haven't had a chance to do it, so maybe you'll... He sent me a picture wearing it in Uganda when he went to visit the Jews of Ab uh, Abu Yadaya. So uh, now the, uh, the pressure's on you. Our CSP hat in the third year traveled to 30 different countries and 65 locations. So bear with me while I tell you where his CSP hat went. Then I'll tell you the categories and who won. It went to Angkor Wat, Cambodia, Athens, Greece, Baden-Württemberg, Germany, Barcelona, Spain, Bavaria, Bialystok, Poland, Budapest, Boston, Massachusetts, that was me, Botswana, Cayman Islands, Chatham and Cape Cod, Chiang Mai, Thailand, China, Cologne, Germany, Crete, Cuba, Dallas, Texas, that was me, Dead Sea, <laughs> Dead sea in Israel, Ethiopia, Galapagos Islands, 
um, the Galilee in Israel, Gerona in Spain, Holland, Honolulu Bay in Maui, Iceland, Indonesia, Italy, Jerusalem, something I can't pronounce in the Netherlands, Koblenz, Germany, Krakow, Poland, Lesotho, Madrid, Spain, Mammoth Lakes, California, that was me, Umbale, Uganda, Melk, Austria, Monaco, Montserrat, Spain, Moscow, Namibia, New Orleans, that wasn't me, that was the Mike and Alita, New York City, Norway, Pakroyos, Lithuania, Paris, Penobscot Bay, Maine, Regen Regensburg or Regensburg, Germany, Rokiskis, Lithuania, this one I can't pronounce, Sa, Sa Dek Kai Bay along the Mekong River near Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, the Sahara, San Marino, Seychelles, Seychelles, Singapore, Slunem, South Africa, St. Petersburg, Swaziland, Tel Aviv, Thailand, Tromso, Vienna, Vilnius, Warsaw, Wurzburg, Germany in the castle, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. That's the way to... I don't know how we're going to up do any better than that. Anybody planning big trips coming up in the next uh, 20, uh, 12 months? So, well, there was, someone did illegally submit a picture, and it was obviously doctored, and I think it was Dr. Norman Rosen, are you here? Where he's wearing it on the moon in a space outfit. I shared that photo with you. I did put you in most creative category, non-winner for obvious for, but very creative. Okay, so we had four categories. Most creative photo, most amazing location, most impressive achievement, most prolific. So the most creative photo um, is a tie this year. Uh, is Lance Aronson here? Lance Aronson, who came just for this reason. I know Lance. Lance wore, this is a true story, Lance went diving off of the coast of Maui in Honolulu Bay when he got down in his scuba gear down, how deep were you? 400 feet, 40 or 50 feet, he put his cap on and took a picture and then lost his cap. So the CSP cap is uh, somewhere on the bottom of Honolulu Bay if anybody's going. And then Charlie Savinor wore it in Girona, Spain, seated on the Game of Thrones throne that was given to Girona. So if you watch Game of Thrones, when they, they, they um, filmed it in different parts of the world um, and any place that hosted them, they gave them a throne and he found the throne, and I have a picture of him seated on the throne like a king, wearing the CSP. Um, honorable mention, Susan Glass wearing a, the CSP hat with a python wrapped around her in uh, the Mekong Delta. And Norman Rosen, as I mentioned, on the moon. So, two winners. Most amazing location. This is hard, because Avi Margali has a picture of himself with in somewhere north of, uh, in Tromso, Norway, with the Aurora Borealis behind him, and he's wearing a CSB hat. And Peter Mesnick is, ha is wearing it um, on Crete, on the island of Crete, in front of the Eitzachayim Synagogue, which is the only remaining synagogue on Crete, and it dates back to the Middle Ages. So there was a tie there. Those two were amazing. Most impressive achievement with a CSB hat. I feel like it's like the Oscars now. Most impressive achievement with a CSP hat, which is very rare because I've never honored a family, but you know, this is a family honor goes to Wendy Aronson for getting Stiesel star cast member Dove Glicklin, who played Sholem Stiesel, to wear the CSP hat. If you see the picture, which you will, he does not look happy because I think Wendy made him wear the hat. But that was an, that's best achievement. Uh, most prolific. Another tie. Um, first is to Avi Margalit, who I mentioned already, but Avi is on a quest to go to, how many countries are there in the world? 
like 150, 120, what's the number? Avi wants to go to all of them that he can go to. And this year, he went to 20 countries and he wore his CSP hat in Norway, Iceland, Cuba, Namibia, South Africa, Lesotho, Swaziland, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Paris, Botswana, Ethiopia, Italy, San Marino, Monaco, France, China, Thailand, Singapore, Indonesia, and Seychelles. So he makes up a lot of our list. And he has sent me pictures from all of those places. So that's, that's an amazing achievement. And then Cliff Cornell, who apparently sleeps in a CSP hat, <laughs> went on a big trip. And I have at least 14 locations in Hungary, Germany, and Austria this summer, including Doheny Street Synagogue, Schoenberg Palace, Cologne Cathedral, Old Market in Cologne, German Corner in Koblenz, Frudenberg, Baden-Württemberg, I can't pronounce that, Main, Würzburg, Germany, a lot of German names, Bamberg, Nuremberg, Mill Network, in the Netherlands, Melk Abbey in Aust Austria, Vienna, Austria, Budapest, Hungary. So that's the tie. So those are the winners. They will get great awards. Please cheer them on. I'll tell you what they're going to get. Oh. Sorry, I should mention, honorable mention in the category of most prolific, Adina Melman, wearing it all over Israel on her trip on birthright. Charlie Savener, who also wears his hat to sleep, I believe. Uh, Peter Mesnick, who travels around Boston and Cape Cod wearing his hat. And Mike Rubin, who definitely wears his hat wherever he can overseas and always sends me pictures, um, but nothing from the sex shops this year that you did last year. <laughs> so winners of the, just so I want you to make sure you know we are serious. This is what winners get to choose from, by the way, just in case you want to participate next year. They can get a pastrami or corned beef sandwich kit from Liebman's Kosher Deli in Riverdale, which is Amy <laughs> Robinson Katz's favorite gift of all time. So if you order that, please invite Amy over to enjoy it. Liebman's also has a kosher knockworks in Frankfurt kit you can order. The St. Viteur Bagel Shop in Montreal will ship you a box full of bagels. Ultimate Seed and Mill Art Artisanal Halva Give Box. That's another choice. Grow and Behold Kosher Meat Box. Bread's Babka Rugelach Combo Pack. Table 87 New York Pizza Feast for 10. Veselka Complete Ukrainian Dinner for 4 to 6. People going on the Baltic trip should think about that because it's in that area. Sable smoked fish and bagel brunch for six. Russ and Daughters New York brunch. These all come in massive boxes. H&H &H bagels, cream cheese, and Nova Scotia salmon. Yona Schimmel 12-pack of knishes from the Lower East Side. Best of Junior's cheesecake, which I think is Alita's favorite. It's a sampler, and she's received it before. Wexler's Deli Big Baller Smoked Fish Experience, which is from L.A. And chocolate-covered hamantaschen from Butterflake Bakery in Teaneck, New Jersey. Appropriate for the upcoming holiday of Purim. The winners get to choose... Hopefully, you are all winners in my book, but those people who wear CSP hats so proudly, they are big winners. For our 20th year, something special will be coming to people who are members and donors, and including socks, and maybe we'll have another competition. Thank you for coming out to the One Month Scholar Program. And uh, if you are uh, anybody I mentioned who um, won the CSP hat competition, or it was an honorable mention, or you were a groupie, come down for a photo. The rest of you, have a great month. It'll be quiet. We will have CSP programs, but nothing like this till next year. Roz and Elliot, thank you again.